My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? Is it possible that an entire empire spanning the globe can be written out of history, leaving nothing but a few traces? Could it be that buildings have been annihilated, books burned, cities leveled, and relics spirited away never to see the light of day again? Could it be the museums which espouse values of preserving history and educating the Philistine masses are actually suppressing evidence of a broader truth outside of their counterfeit factualities. There are many who have taken up the monumental task of combing through the many layers of our history, yet few are like today's guest, the superhuman Tartarian computer himself, Andreas Exertus, back for a fourth time here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm Mystic Mark, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with Andreas Exertus. Tartary is the culture before the reset. So it comes up in morals and dogma. And there's a, there's a number of times to talk about the Tartars. Tartars have been anti-Masonic. If you look at the traditions of Tartarstan, which is a rather important region that it still is associated with Tartar culture. Masonry was kind of, uh, it was evaded in a lot of ways. But that's because the mullahs, okay, that's the Muslim word for the priests we're looking for. The mullahs are, they're, they're Gnostic enough. And masonry is a very Gnostic thing. Like it's, it, there's Rosicrucianism, but Rosicrucianism kind of did its own church. And masonry was trying to be something a little different than a church. It was focusing on the, 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 the craft and some of the rituals, but it's not really the church itself. The idea of the temple being built by Solomon with the power of spirits or demons, daimons, jinns, you know, this is something that all of the Gnostic or religious or you know, secret groups have said they've, Gurdjieff, have said they've spirited out of Tartaria you know, in one word or another. But it really often, if you look at the 19th century, it, it often comes back to Tartaria. And 
they almost always say that this empire that existed was so much more aware of the internal technologies. So when we think of external technologies, we think of writing with a typewriter, but an internal technology could be using a pencil to write calligraphy. And we have all of these traditions that have been erased that we don't even think of as a valuable cursive, but those were the different kinds of peoples had all these different ways of internalizing technology that's been destroyed. And part of masonry has, you know, valued Moorish sciences. So Moorish sciences, they make sure not to call Muslim scientists, you know, sciences for that reason. You look, we're talking about Iran and the Persian mysticism. it right so i figure if you start to ask them what it is about the word of paul that they're concerned is that they're assured is the word of god it's a little different you know you're okay i can get it you're saying that the scriptures are the word of god why is the letter to thessalonia the word of god i think that i don't know if that was what we were saying if that was the clip i heard at the beginning but that was kind of how do you know that because this is idea of Gnosticism is really a lot of these groups were saying, well, we're, we're pretty convinced that the word of God and all that, but you know, the idea that Paul's letter to this city is the word of God is really, you know, why, and why is, why is this other book then not the word of God, which is about the wisdom of Christ and the Sophia of Christ and all this thing. So these, that's how Islam and Mormonism and Manichaeism, I was reading about these things on my channel the last few days, like all these religions that kind of prospered. St. Augustus was a Manichaeist, you know, before he was a Christian because he was into the dualism and all of these things that existed. And technically Christ was part of that tradition. You know, they really you know, valued Christ similarly to Islam. It's just because it's been mostly destroyed, we consider them to be a cult because a cult means hidden. You know, if these right. weren't hidden, then they would just be, you wouldn't even call them that. It's like, that's the difference between Aleister Crowley and Joseph Smith. Cause Joseph, you know, like Mormonism is really not that different than Thelema in a little, in, in a lot of ways, it's similar. And there's more, there's connections to Christianity and to cults and everything else. But the main difference is it's acceptable in social norms because it's an established religion. I mean, otherwise it would be the occult, right? And there are occult practices that you can't even know about. So, right, right. Well, here we are, brother. I'm going to hit record. We're going to get going. Andreas Sirtis on the mic, on the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast for the fifth time, technically fourth time, if we're going to just go with My Family Thinks Some Crazy because you joined us on Illuminati Confirmed last time. But we've done a, a lot of podcasts together over the past year or so, brother. I mean, not just yeah. this one. We've been on other, you know, group podcasts together. And uh, yeah, I really got to, you know, give it up to you because you're always changing it up. You're always bringing something new to the table. And what you've been doing with recent Tartarians lately is really cool. You heard you know, eavesdropped on me listening to your interview with David Ewing Jr., and that was synchronistic because the night that came uh, out, or at least when it was premiering, I was going on the Grimerica show for the first time 
to be interviewed about the skull and bones research that I'm doing and just kind of laying out some of the one-on-one stuff and how I got involved with, you know, just understanding what they were, you know, from a local level, brushing up against all these weird things in New Haven and trying to find explanations for them. But for the rare, rare, uncommon listener who hasn't heard of you before, because I know most of our audience should be pretty familiar with you by now. Can you give us a little intro as to who you are and what you've been up to lately? Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm Andreas and uh, Exertus, and you've seen some of my videos probably now. I've been luckily doing so many more videos. I, I, I was on the Vice special where I basically pwned them into doing this video about me that's about their hollow earth uh, research and I just fit into their parts. So it's, it's on a very metal metal level. And I recommend checking it out because you can see like how to, how fake news is created where people don't even know what's happening in the middle of a broadcast. And yet, you know, the audience can know that because they already know me. So check out the, the hollow yeah, earth. We're going to link that in the, in the episode description for sure. And I remember when you first told me about that, you're like, yeah, keep this under wraps. Don't tell anyone yeah. my lips were <laughs> sealed and I'm glad to see it. It came to fruition. That's really cool, man. It's super wild. And we got to go into like all these caves and everything. And you know, it's amazing the amount of doors that can open and you can see how the difference is like what they can do because they have access to lawyers and this huge mm. team to make things happen. Oh, so, so you were able to go rad, to some like doing my own podcast now where I just every day I'm making a video on what I'm researching and mm. you can tune in. It's like three o'clock, I think Eastern standard, right on. something like that. And I just try to, maybe it's four, depends, you know, but I try to focus on, like, for the last week I've been doing Gnostic religions and Persian mysticism and, you know, Babylonian connections to Christianity that way. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, I've noticed that, and I definitely want to spend some time talking about some of that today. But before we move off of the topic of your vice piece there... How much off limits type of places did you go to? Like how many off access, like public access, you know, like you were Dude. going, you were going behind private. So they, took us, right? they took us in a propeller plane at one point to a place you couldn't even bring to an airport. That was at the Oregon border. And before that, we were going to go, like they actually got us these, the, they talked to the state and figured out how we could go under Mount Shasta through these tunnels that we could go, because we were a part of this group and it, the optics were good and they were going to have insurance. They were going to let us go like a mile deeper than anyone has ever gone in these caves. But then we talked to this Oracle girl, this remote viewer, and she told us that, you know, while we were looking at everything and how it was open, that they'd noticed that we were coming and they didn't want us to come. And it was whatever. I mean, I thought, you know, this is kind of a crazy little thing, you know, if it's part oh, of the no. thing. Then the right all place of a sudden a fire it. broke out in Shasta and it burned out like this whole region. And there was no way for us to get into that entrance to the cave. But it was okay because then we went with this propeller plane to this Oregon area that's very close to Shasta because volcanoes have flumes that go outwards. The Shasta flume that connects it to, forget the name of the place now, Lassen, in Lassen National Park area. And so we had to go deep into Lassen National Park and then follow these bat mine, these bat caves that we go through. And we use 3D scanning equipment and scan the interior of the tunnel systems. And we're looking for different kinds of flora and fauna and extremophiles that live in the caves. And also the idea of whether or not there's these 
entrances to Telos, which was kind of like the idea of Tart- Tartarus and Tartaria being connected to these underground cities or something that was separated from the above world that still has subterranean cities that the military might be interacting with. I think David Icke has talked about dumbs and there are military for- fortifications that we have that people have had ages of stories about interacting with uh, something there. So going and looking to see that, why not? But we didn't find any lizard people. We didn't find any entrances to the earth. But we did find the idea, likely, that it's like an Etch-A-Sketch. And so there's a system. If there if, if there were really are tunnel systems to this Agartha-Telos thing, then there, there would be tunnels in between would have sand, and you'd have to open up the, the, the tunnels. They would be closed off unless you knew exactly how to get through them. Right. And that makes more sense because sand could then collapse, you know, pour out, and then – the that makes that's what California looks like. There's a huge sediment layer between the the rock layer and the crust. So, eh, I mean, Hollow Earth isn't my main focus, though. It's some a lot of people know, but they made it look like you know I'm like completely. Uh, that's all I have ever studied was Hollow Earth. And but the point was to show like how we go about looking into something. We're looking into Hollow Earth, and we use as many scientific tools as we can, talk to as many people as we can, try not to die like in the Blair Witch Project, and get out of it with you know some video. So it was it's pretty cool. I was glad that we got to do it that way. And yeah, Lassen has amazing all kinds of the volcanic evidence that these are like miles and miles of tunnels from pressurized flumes being pushed out, making these huge, you know, spherical and circular tunnels, tubular tunnels. It's amazing. I mean, they really are the most impressive thing. And from that, we started looking into Gabon and Gabon is in West Africa. Actually, I think it might be in centralish uh, Africa, but Gabon is where they found in Oklo, the nuclear power volcanoes. And there are volcanoes the French government have tried to kind of hide and they've said, well, this must be a natural reactor because we've, we can prove that this amount of uranium has been depleted. So something has happened, and there's 16 natural flumes that have gone out in different directions that are producing these accelerators for particles. So there's something going on there. But it's so ancient, that the likelihood of it being anything other than a natural thing is impossible, so we're going to call it natural, right? And so then we started looking. That gives us more and more corroborative evidence of volcanic power in the old world before the reset. Wow. Yeah, man. And um, just let me know if my connection is weird because I'm trying streaming out for the new, first time on my new rig in the new place. Oh, nice. So I don't know if if, it, if it's bothering me, I might just end the stream and people just have to get the show when it's done. But Andreas, that's huge, brother. I, I love the idea that you kind of picked like an Andy Kaufman approach to this subject because like anytime you get into the shape of the earth, you're getting into hot water. You know, we, we've had, you know, other conversations about that, but it seems like Tartaria, I'm going to end the stream because I'm already unhappy with the way this is. Sorry, folks. Is there some, it's breaking. Oh. Yeah, it's breaking up on my end. It's just not going to look good on the video side. So who cares? Okay. I, I stream on the Telegram, though, and the Telegram audience is pretty cool. They just jump in and turn it on, and you could listen right from your phone. You don't even need to, to Telegram launch. is awesome. I can't believe how Telegram has changed the world. I haven't been using it as much in the last month, when it, but right when the Ukraine conflict happened, of course, it was. I was in all these Telegram channels, and I figured the best thing you could do is start translating the Ukrainian propaganda and the Russian propaganda 
and then just putting it out there so people could see what yeah. they were telling each other. And it was incredible because so many of these stories, I mean, you have to understand the echo chambers that get to Twitter. Mm-hmm. It's very much like the memes that get to Facebook. It's a month later before, four, you know, 4chan's making the meme, 8infinite8chan eight or whatever. Uh, and then you hear about it. It's already gone through approval through these referrals of these memesters for you know a generation really, which is a month. And the Russian propaganda, the Ukrainian propaganda, is so telling. Like the Ukrainians would say, "Oh, you know, we found this girl beaten. Look at this video we found on this phone that it shows them they were like beating this girl up and everything's like in the way." But you look at it and it's like, okay. I don't, it doesn't really look real. It looks like the girl's really dramatic in this. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I I shouldn't say it like that, but the footage is designed in a way that you're thinking, why would they film this? It doesn't seem logical. It's mostly just evidence. She's wearing a Dunkin' Donuts employee uniform. How is this in Ukraine? (laughs) Yeah. Then again, you've got the exact same thing from the Ukrainians. There's videos of Russians. Oh, we found a Ukrainian soldier and they've beaten the Russian girls from these towns. And it's, it's plausible, but like, again, why would they be filming it with five of their other soldiers with them doing this thing? It really in the lighting and everything, it it's too well produced. Oh yeah. And you you know, both sides have propaganda ministries. I'm not saying that not that there isn't well, truth out there. I mean, it's we out there. The ghost of Kiev is a lie and they admitted it finally. So yeah, well, yeah, the ghosts of Kiev, aka Sam Hyde. He was on Tinfall Hat a little while ago. Right, yeah, no, that's true. Sam Hyde is real. I'm Sam sorry, Hyde, he's a mythological figure, but yeah, he's real. His his email feedback was mythological as well. But uh, yeah, I've seen I've seen the the weird like propaganda memes. I saw a video of like a bunch of body bags in the truck. And then a guy like unzips one from the inside and smokes a cigarette. You know, there's the one where it's like a bombed out car, but all the buildings next to the bombed out car are, uh, you know, fully intact. None of the windows are exploded. It's like, wow, those are some really, really durable windows you guys have there in Ukraine. And, and the, right. the the wall paint as well doesn't seem to be burnt whatsoever, even though a whole series of cars exploded less than 10 feet away. So, yeah, there's a lot of fishy stuff. But before we get too bogged down in current events, because I don't think many people come to the show. For, I know, right? I'm so excited that they don't. Too. Yeah, they don't come to the show for current events. You know, we, we, we're here to talk about the weird, the wild, the strange the interesting and you know you're one of the most refreshing sources of information when it comes to the tartaria conversation unfortunately there are some like you know there's rhetoric going on with tartaria it's a lot of like people regurgitating the same stuff and you know you are in complete um opposition to that in a sense of like you're bringing new intellectual takes on this subject every time I look into your content. So, you know, kind of going back to what you just talked about with the hollow earth possibly connecting to this larger forgotten civilization. In that recent interview, I was just listening to yourself and David Ewing Jr. were making the point that, you know, this group that we call the Tartarians, one group of scholars calls the Mongolians. Another time, in another time period, they called them the Caliphate. In another time period, they called them, you know, the Israelites. So, like, this is something that I think maybe we can start with and and branch further into, you know, what you've learned since, because we've talked about this many times here. But I think it's it's a conversation that you could have endlessly. You know, there's so many facets to focus on. Well, so I would start with saying 
you know, the Turanian connection is very important. And I recently did a study into the different groups that were presenting Tartarianism back in the 19th century. There's about 100 or so scholars. Maybe 20 of them have wiki pages and the rest you have to conjugate their names about 19 times in Hungarian to figure out how they spelt their name in the book that you're going to find on archive.org. But when you look up pseudo-Turkology, you'll find that there was a group of people that were saying, hey, we know about the Taters, and the Taters are probably Turks. In fact, everybody's probably Turkish. And you know what? I think Turkism is the most important thing, and we should look into the Turkological aspects of everything. And from there, they found out that, you know, and this is kind of why the movement stops. It still exists, and don't, you know, be upset, because, you know, there are amazing Evident, you know, the Turks are the Istanbul, Constantinople. There's no way to, to to ignore the importance of Turkey, but also there's other people in Turkey. You know, you have to acknowledge the Kurds, right? You have to acknowledge you you ought to acknowledge the Kurds. I feel like that's something. If, if you talk to almost anyone in American military, if you ever meet someone who's been to Iraq or Afghanistan on tour, and you say, "Oh, where you been? Even Afghan? Oh, the the we did the Kurds dirty." You know, yeah, we did the Kurds dirty. You could pretty much relate to just about any American serviceman or, you know, because that's a fact. Like most people notice that we did the Kurds dirty. And that's not just in Turkey. It's also in Iraq. And then when you start to recognize this idea that the Turks that were spread across into the Sassanid Empire and the Umayyad Caliphate, it isn't just Turks. Okay. So there's also this idea of Turan and Turan was the cultural nation. So there's different identities of a nation and different identities of a state. A state is a legitimate source of violence. So that could be the resource-bound economy that is making deals with corporations and making loans with banks and has the legitimate source of violence to beat its citizens into paying taxes, okay? So its citizens are made up of nations, and there are multiple versions of a nation. A nation could be uh, a nation of Islam, right? It's a religious nation, a nation of, of a race, you know, like the tribe of Judah or something to that effect. One of the Semitic peoples that have decided to do their, their thing. And again, there could be a different way to look at a nation. Again, there's, a, there's the American nation, which is all these different ideas. What does it mean to be the American nation? So Turanian society, it focuses on this Orientalism aspect. And that's not Asia, really. That I mean, it is, but it, it's your Asia. It's that exact spot to the Caucasus and into the east of it, but really Anatolia. And so Anatolianism is this idea that in this region, there was a lot of money, there's a lot of trade, there's a lot of power. And these groups of people that controlled this region had a lot of influence in a lot of the world. But when you start to look into who those people were, not all of them look the same. In fact, you've got Asian looking people that look like they're Chinese and you have black people and you have white people and you have the redheads. When you start to look into the early Islamic, the Mahdi and the, the stories of Muhammad and his family, Ali, et cetera, the Mahdi's families are all redheads, right? And so that they're redheads and they used to wear green and green comes from the Ishmaelites. And so, this is something you can find in the Ten Commandments movie. I just kind of noticed the correlation. I liked it enough is with Charlton Heston. And it's funny because these are the movies I always thought were the most Disneyfied, the most ridiculous. They just, this isn't what the true story of the Ten Commandments could be like. But you know what? Masonically speaking, there's some truth in that movie. And there's, there's some interesting little things that they've done that connect it to a number of other traditions. For instance, the basket. You start to find out about the basket in later traditions in Islam. They believe that there's going to be a second coming of Muhammad, and the, or some of them do. 
and they you know they believe in this you know Mahdi and he's the little baskets was the the first names coming out of raised in the temple in a mosque by kind of a priest who's you know not not what's the word for the priest um I forget, but he raises this baby and he's, he's called little basket. So when the baby's born, when Moses is born, he's, he's born with this red cloak, right? Red with black and white and black, and then red and black again. And red, it's this red cloak. And it, you see, Jesus is often shown with this red shroud, you know, when he's, you know, killed and then there's a lot of connections to red, but then when you look at pictures of Moses afterwards, after the red cloak, when he goes to the desert and into the, even just before, you know, when he's cast out of Israel, um, out of Egypt, you know, before he's, before he's in charge of his, his group, when he, originally Moses starts out as just this baby raised by Egyptians, raised by the Pharaoh's sister and finds out late in, late in life, he's 30 or something that he is actually adopted or that he was brought from the tribe of Judah. So this tells us two things. One, that Egyptians and Semitic peoples looked enough alike at that that time that this could have happened. The people could have thought these people were the same kind of people that there was no distinguishment and they would just let it happen Two, that Moses did not know anything about Judaism until he was at least 30, because up until that point, you know, he was raised Egyptian and his brother Ramses was uh, the one who was taught to go after the scholarly traditions of Judaism to understand what this idea of uh, salvation, why they were going to try to, how they were going to be free just to make sure that they had control over them. So his brother knew about it way more than he did. Anyway, Moses is kicked out and he gets across the desert and he meets hmm, Joslo, Joslo, I think is his name. I have the I have a I have, to, I have to find it, but the point is this is the uncle, uh, the brother, the, the father-in-law. After this point, because he meets this man who's part of the Ishmaelite tribe, and so you're going back to this old tradition in the Bible. It says, or in the Torah, it says that there was Abraham who had many sons. And if you heard that part, many sons had father Abraham, and one of them was Isaac, and the other was Ishmael, and Ishmael that was first. And but he was born of the slave wife. And so he was, even though he was the firstborn, he wasn't born of the, the true wife. And so it begins the maternal line of Judaism, the Judas, and also of the Ishmaelites, of the Israelites and the Ishmaelites. And so the Ishmaelites continue on. They wear green. And so the green cloak is then put upon Moses. And then Moses takes what he learns from the Ishmaelites and he he assimilates really into the Ishmaelites, who then go with the Israelites, except a lot of them are already free, so not all of them do. But then you begin to see the connection of the tribes, and the tribe of Levi, and everyone is centered around Moses for a generation. But that begins the transition of those those people. The second part of that is when they're crossing this idea of a lost 13th tribe. Okay, so when people say this tribe is kicked out, this idea of these Ishmaelites, because Moses married into the Ishmaelites and his son who is really, you know, part of this tradition is, you know, considered in some respects part of the tribe of Levi, but a lot of the time is rejected and believed by some Islamics and others who are part of this, you know, cause not every Ishmaelite is a Muslim. The Muslim thing is way later. So there's this idea of Arabs that are birthed from the same tradition. And Muhammad said he was from the Ishmaelite tradition. That's why he wore above his red hair, a green turban and green becomes the color of Islam. And you see the green on the Pakistan, Palestine, and, you know, house of Saudi flag and, 
the green mosque and they, they love the color green because it all goes back to the shroud of the Ishmaelites. That also works in Persia. You start to see green all over Persia and the connection that Iran had this Ishmaelite Persian empire. That And so the story then becomes a bit more ubiquitous to all of these cultures. And Manny, who's the prophet, Manny, originally before Christianity was even as big, the first world religion was Manichaeism. And St. Augustus was, a, was part of Manichaeist traditions before he joined the Christian movement, focusing, saying, no, Jesus is the prophet that matters the most. In fact, he's the son of God and et cetera. And beginning the argument of, did Jesus have a human aspect or was he did he, how did he die if he was the son of god you know trying to wrestle with the humanist ideas between if god was a man or if god was a god or if there, he could have a dualistic uh existence so in europe that i mean sorry in eurasia at that time the movement started to f- focus in tehran and tehran was Mur- it was a center of a lot of murder. There were so many different groups of people that were coming through and just killing everyone that they could. And we we look like probably at mercenaries that are being paid off to do this. But in every generation, you have a king who has this new army that's picked up from another area, and they come into Iran, and they kill and burn as many of the books as we can find. And looking at the historical context – you know, that's where we we start to wonder, does the Muslim calendar have some better records for us? Because as we know from the Fomenko calendar, a number of these events are happening right on top of each other. It looks like this is taking place over 1500 years. But once you get into the Muslim calendar, things are a lot more recent. You know, this is only going on from the 700s. This really ends up being that maybe in the last 300 years, everything we think happened in 1300 years in Iran really happened in the last 300 years. And that's a mind-blowing, crazy thing to think, but at the same time, it also explains why so many things were discovered in 1945 that were not that destroyed. Like, why did we find the Young Codex? Why was it? Why are so many of these documents in better condition than we would have expected them to be if they really were from you know a thousand or 1900 years ago? The likelihood of them being a lot more recent, probably from the 1600s to 1700s, is the case. So, looking into Tehranian culture, we see. Examples of you know, Jesus is mentioned all the time, but Jesus is a different character. He's a lot of the time got a sword. He's talking about a reset of banking systems and infrastructures that the lending system will have to be. Uh, there's a system according to, is it in Deuteronomy? I forget, but they, they have a rule that they have to forgive debts and tithes every certain amount of years or generations. And it was, they were saying, this is the time where they're going to have to completely collapse the banking system and start it over. And Jesus was apparently part of this movement saying, Hey, our state has been suppressed by this trading empire, which is said, we can do what we want, except quote unquote, pay taxes. Isn't that familiar? So this shows this sort of this is why we're getting into this idea of Gnosticism as explaining what happened in the last reset, because this, you know, this, they were saying, hey, the Armageddon is coming. And the Armageddon probably already came. It probably refers to this period where everything is reset and all of history has changed. And we're told that it happened way further than that moment in order to distance ourselves from really studying what's going on. Right, right. And this brings us back to the point about the missing time, the timeline being shifted, creating this false obstacle of time in the way of understanding. And and really behind it is a motivation to obfuscate our connection 
with the past in a way that we can tangibly do something about it. But I wonder, you know, considering the recent texts that have been found within the past hundred or so years, you guys were making the point on this interview I keep referring to with Mr. Ewing about how these museums just have all of these artifacts. And, you know, I find this, you know, suspicious from one lens, but from another lens, I can see how maybe the average person would be like, oh, well, you know, museums, that's what rich people do. They, they buy things, they preserve things, and then they donate it to, to a museum. And who better to do that than these philanthropic, you know, rich people, how kind of them. And then, you know, how, like, how, no, I mean, how, how many of these basements of these museums are just overrun with actual artifacts while all of these, you know, mockeries, these like mock-ups are on the top floors being, you know, shown off to the public as like evidence for this false narrative. I mean, this, I'm pretty convinced like the Louvre is full of a lot of replicas. Mm. I know that that would offend some, you know, I've had, I've had arguments with French about this even, but I'm pretty convinced that they, they've protected a lot of the actual Louvre art. And you have to go to some of the more rare museums to find art that's in its, its actual form. But then people have also replicated art by just fixing it. And then you see the original version, like what do they do to their faces? So they're deconstructing, by promising to repair restorationism is the most dangerous thing to history but yeah of course it's a racket you know you say you've got this nonprofit; it's gonna help people you put some of your family's stuff that doesn't fit in the castle you know in the front there and then you keep the good stuff of course you know that's that's what it's always been most of that stuff it, it, it can be it can be fake or real. It doesn't really matter. But I think a lot of that stuff is real. It just depends on where you go. I mean, in terms of, I'm not talking about the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian does have a lot of whatever. I mean, not just kidding. If you not just being accusational, if you go to the Smithsonian, you'll see it's a bunch of made-up figurines representing things on purpose to let you see. Oh, this is what a whale would look like, you know, <laughs> after the Soylent Green time when they're extinct. But if you go to like the English london museum or some of the displays of the explorer club yeah i mean they stole things you know you go it's the same as if you go to the vatican and you see an obelisk from napoleon or something they stole things this happens all the time so it, it's on one level not philanthropic because it's in order to protect the, their you have this is the beautiful thing about this and I, i've been noticing people say oh well you know what would elon musk do if there were no tax breaks or something what would most people do like there are people that know how to use the system and the system is is once the system is developed the rich people that know how to manipulate the system use it to build their em- enterprise and the enterprise has an agenda and they have this agenda so the explorer club is the perfect example right fdr and his friends went around the world went to antarctica said other people can't go there because they told the states to protect these places i mean it's all part of their deal and then they can show you the only pictures that you see of a place and they can protect it and they can make only deals with mineral excavation companies or whatever else they're going to do yeah right right and it really brings up the question for me like how much of this is false authorship i mean specifically yeah the art pieces and statues and relics and things are great but one of the things that really stood out about what you mr ewing were talking about were the books and how these, you know, books that are supposed to be the, you know, 
original copies that inspired all of these people to do things, they seem to be fabricated. They seem to be in the possession of these museums and they come up at a certain point in history when it's convenient to the narrative. It doesn't seem like these are actual organic discoveries. I bet, you know, well, I know that the Explorer club flag can only be exhibited in the pursuit of a scientific achievement. So of course, Apollo eight, 11 and 13 and Apollo 15 all had, um, to bring the, you know, Explorer Club flag with them, right? So, wow. I mean, <laughs> if that doesn't concur with you, then I don't know what else does. Yeah. Yeah, man. I, and I think, you know, we have other examples of this outside of the Tartaria concept. Maybe these fit in. I don't know. You tell me. But something that fascinated me about what you guys were talking about was this concept that, like, each nation has their own Shakespeare character. Like France has their Victor Hugo. Another country had another gentleman of equal significance. And I'm wondering like how much of that false authorship do we see in these things that are supposed to be like milestones of our culture and landmarks of human, you know, human innovation and artistic ingenuity. Meanwhile, it seems like they're just vestiges from this culture that was, you know, being suppressed. I think we need to like, I don't know. Okay. So this is, it's funny coming from a person who does a lot of my own things myself. So I don't know, but I think we need to disassociate from the idea that everyone is a self made person and maybe there are certain aspects though all art is stolen they say right if someone's going to write down what i was ranting about that's kind of the ed devere thing if you saw my alexander war talk we talked a lot about ed devere was not only the voice behind shakespeare but probably not the uh, hand necessarily because i mean he could have been Literally, you know, because of a sword fight, he might have been incapacitated and not able to do certain things. And so he might have had his team working around him. There are ghost writers that if you have a series of books, some people have 20 books, right? Sometimes they have ghost writers. Then again, people like Ewing Jr. and I, we don't, and we just continually put out content. So that exists. So we have to accept that as well. It depends on the way. There are probably savants. You can say that most of the the voices in in time are from savants, mediums, people that are picked up on some sort of a a flow of prose or energy or synchronicity or, but also have learned to memorize things. I mean, there were kids that memorized the Bible at five to 10 years old and went around the country as these little Southern minister prodigies that were famous. Right. But, you know, you can think of like Giovanni Boccaccio, uh, Matteo, Bandello, uh, Masuccio, Salentano, those are the three that I've been expecting to research more recently and I haven't gotten to yet too too deeply, but they're the Italian equivalents of Shakespeare from the last two or three centuries prior. And as you start to go back further, you say, okay, well, I can see where this is going. I can continue the line and eventually I will, and we're going to get all of the evidence and it'll just be this great book. But as we're doing that, the reason I'm going to get all the evidence is because it's very clear from Shakespeare to the Aeneid or to uh, any number of ancient plays, what's going on? Because you've got Italian Renaissance tutors that have come to Britain and they've taught this guy the same way that you taught Dutch nobles, because essentially the Dutch took over England, if you look at it in that way at that time. So 
the Euro Austro Bohemian Empire all have the same kind of teachings. And you have one royal grandmother, is it Victoria, over the three. Is it Victoria? I believe so. It might have been Elizabeth, but maybe it's Elizabeth. Yeah, I think Elizabeth might have been the grandmother of the three different empires, the Prussian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the British Empire. They were all cousins, really, you know, but they they were raised like brothers, you know, even though they were maybe they were a step, what do you call it? One degree cousins because they were the grand grandnephews. But they had them, they were raised with each other. So all of Europe was one little family run kind of empire, even though they had said this empire will be this nephews and this will be that nephews. It was all the British, Dutch, German, Hanover, you know, House of Windsor family that had controlled it. And so they were taking all of these books and they were looking at all of this information and they were saying, we're going to rewrite it, make it about our culture, make it for our culture. But you have to remember at that time, most people weren't speaking that kind of English. They were speaking this sort of ancient Frisian English. And the same can be said in France and can be said in Russia. And in fact, if you start to look at Russian, that's where Ewing Jr.'s information about Arabic starts to really fill in because look at Russian cursive. It looks like the like sine waves or something in an earthquake. It's just these straight up and down lines, but it, it really is a kind of an Arabesque, um, an Arabic style, not like Kufi, but the the third script and most of the arabic work that went into you know europe it it was destroyed in parts of europe that had the inquisition but could continue their way up into russia and into um st petersburg but you know the kazakhstan and areas the soviet union had contained then soviet russia went back in and started to interact more and more with these isolated pockets that were still parts of this arab russo world so there are, you know, great examples like Pushkin and, you know, the Russian poets and everyone that redefined the Russian language as well. If you took Anastasia's Russian and compared it to today's Russian, it's very different. They've already lost a case or two. I think they've gotten rid of a formal case. They, they still have one formal case, but they used to have an, an even more super formal case. And they had a formal pretext of if you don't know if someone's above you, but it, they could be a neutral formality case and i think they've retired both of those cases but you know there were some of these languages had 19 different classes that would interact with each other and knew how to interact and so this is that's where you can see the connections to the Turanian empire because you can see that well these people you know like the turks like the finnish like these different groups of the ugaric cultures like the tamil all interacted with 19 different kinds of people and had different ways of addressing them out of respect it is it clearly was too much i mean it did not it did not last it exists in turkey today it exists in finland but it's not the way the the majority of the world wishes to communicate swahili is not that way english is not that way you know so we've moved towards a new thing and that's all because of these writers who said hey do we really need Spanish? I mean, Spanish is doing it right now. There are all these new Spanish writers that are trying to remove gender. You know, they're using pluralities to communicate, which is crazy. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. Wow. Yeah, that is kind of odd considering how gendered that language is specifically. And a lot of the languages that share that kind of tongue have that sort of thing going on. I'm the a language the expert. The X pronounces je, so they can just do like Latinx. You've seen this Latinx. Latinche. Oh, so we're all, so when we go to Mexico, we're amongst the Latinches. 
Very it's cool. more likely Argentina. I think because the difference is like yellow, like the ya sound in Argentina is a sh sound. So caballero would be caballero, you know, okay. like that's, it's an Argentinian thing. Right on. And you, you're amazingly cultured for someone who, you know, you have sort of like ambiguous ethnicity. I couldn't place you if I tried, but like how, how much of the world have you been to Andreas? Like, do you do a lot of this traveling in your mind with your research or do you actually go to these, a lot of these places? Only the surface of it, but I've seen, you know, a lot of the earth at this point. I'm Slavic, I'm Croatian and okay. a little bit of Spanish. We like, so I guess we're like the most normal European kind of, uh, peoples or slavs and, and galatians i like think you told me about this before yeah i did a video or i did a not even a video i was talking to ian and ian had talked about what's up with people ian crossland people using the tie why do people wear a tie well the tie comes from the cravat the cravat is from the word hervat or croat which was the in the the way people noticed my people they were like hey those guys wear those, those, those guys wear those things on their, what are those ties? Let's call them, oh, they're Hervats. So people continue to wear those because a lot of the Slavs were enslaved and they were used to interact because they could, they were polylingual. They could communicate with maybe four or five different kinds of people because they were, you know, like Trump's wife can speak five languages to an extent because she's traveled, right? And that's what happens to a lot of the people on the Dalmatian coast as they end up interacting with people. So the tie represented like the highest butler, I guess. <laughs> wow. Look at that. You're just full of that kind of stuff. I I have no idea where to to pinpoint exactly because there's so many different interesting things we could really pull on from all that you just shared with us. But um trying to stay on tracks with Tartaria, I guess, you know, like these the the Saint John of Ecclesiastes and and Saint John the Baptist they're sort of like these figures in Freemasonry right and I might be mistaken but I think I've read something about uh, Saint John of Tartar I think it was in Eusebius's history of the church is there any connection between Masonry and Tartary I mean is this just kind of like a silly question that I'm asking or is there something there well, I, I guess like the better the better way of putting it is that you know they mention Tartary because Tartary is the culture before the reset, so it comes up in morals and dogma. Mm -hmm. And there's a there's a number of times they talk about the Tartars. Tartars have been anti Masonic. If you look at the traditions of Tartarstan, which is a rather important region that it still is associated with Tartar culture, Masonry was kind of uh, it was evaded in a lot of ways, but. That's because the mullahs who, okay, that's the Muslim word for the priests we're looking for. The mullahs are, they're, they're Gnostic enough. And masonry is a very Gnostic thing. Like it's, it, there's Rosicrucianism, but Rosicrucianism kind of did its own church. And masonry was trying to be something a little different than a church. It was focusing on the, 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 the craft and some of the rituals, but it's not really the church itself. And they'll often have a church it's not the the lodge that they've built as well. You know, the same group will have built the church and then also built the lodge. So it shows that they're not using it as a church psychologically. Um, masonry is because all the traditions of Hermes Tr Trimagistus were becoming very popular and they were not allowed to talk about them in their churches. It was a place where a lot of Gnostics went. And that's, that's the tie-in with so many of these traditions. And they're saying, yeah, we know so much about the Gnostic traditions, 
that's the least evil or one of the least evil aspects of Freemasonry, right? Because it's just people that are, you know, interested in things that they weren't allowed to talk about in, in general. And at a time when they were saying Christianity was, again, the word of God is Paul's letters to Thessalonia or Corinth, right? Which is a very different, people don't think of it when they say, okay, yeah, Christianity, the word of God. No, 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 no. It's not just, <laughs> it's it's not just the verses where they're saying do one to other no 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 it's not even the ones that say women can't be teachers which are weird enough no this is straight up just random aspects of letters that this guy who used to kill christians all the time is now taken over the church and says okay this is christianity now we're going to make it okay but anything that's not this isn't okay to so all of these groups they have the gospel of Philip, the, the gospel of Bartholomew, the, you know, there's, there's all these, the gospel of Nicodemus, right? The gospel of Nicodemus is the one where Jesus dies, has to go to hell and walk out, right? Like, like Orpheus. But this time he has to pick up the sinners along the way who've died. And even, you know, just anybody at, all the way to Adam and Eve and bring Adam and Eve out of hell and walk them out. And so that that's one of the Gnostic uh, gospels. There's another one that has Solomon fighting King David. There's another one, you know, there's so many different versions of these holy books at the time that were not acceptable by one group or another group. And so this is also like Islam emerged because Islam became a name for the Muhammadan prophet tradition. But Islam is just a word that was being used even, you know, 5,000, 3,000 years ago. It became a, a word that was associated with being healthy. It's probably the best way, but emotionally healthy as well. And people started to say, okay, that means being in bliss, you know, but that's a much, maybe a thousand years ago. And then it started to mean submission. Once the, the Muslims, quote unquote, Muhammadan era took it over, probably about a century after Muhammad, maybe like the eighth, ninth, late eighth, early ninth century, things started to really become all about submission and that was not the but then it, it supplants itself in every one of these religions that these old traditions were about control you know and masonry tried to avoid being about control i mean again in the title is free meaning free agency meaning free enterprise being able to work for whichever master you choose and that's a speculative freemasonry means that you can make your own decisions. It's a really interesting kind of pun. You're saying, you know, I have been able to choose my own master. Now that doesn't necessarily mean you choose the devil. A lot of, if a lot of people think that that means that the Masons are all like, we're going to no. but it, it does. It does mean that they are separate from believing that the letters of Paul are necessarily fact. That's not something you have to do if you're at all interested in the Gnostic text. And then from there, Things can really go crazy. Of course, you can have people that spiral off into uh, the Qumran documents and everything else, talking about people that secreted out Christ. And there are Masons, I'm sure, that are all about these esoteric. I mean, of course, because there are Rosicrucians that are. I mean, anybody can join an organization. Anybody can be in some Facebook group, right? The main thing is they're not supposed to talk about those things. So the, that's the biggest problem, I think, with Freemasonry really is they don't talk about Tartaria enough. They don't mention these things more because it's not likely that you're going to read too many Masons furthering the research in the public sphere about uh, the morals and dogma and saying, okay, well, here, when he talks about the Tartars, what does he mean? And 
this could have been resolved in the thirties, right? It's if the, at the same time that they were making Flintstone cartoons about the water Buffalo fraternity playing bowling games, that they had talked about some of these esoteric aspects more publicly, that would have been great. But you know, that kind of gets back into court Meyer and the CIA, right? And I'm sorry, the skull and bones, because so much of the, you know, Geronimo skull and all of these things that they have, the ability you're talking about the ability to control the future is based on your ability to hold the past in your hands. I mean, if that, if that isn't the embodiment literally of, of that, then I don't know, know what is wow. in the control of the narrative. So being able to control the narrative, you can focus what people focus on. Wow. Yeah. And I do, you know, I, like I said at the beginning, before we started recording, I do have a project that I'm working on. I love to, include john and you know we'll save that another time because i i'm sure you have plenty to talk about but when it comes to skull and bones yeah very you know intrinsically a part of the masonic story seems like their response to that anti-masonic movement that went about around the time that they were founded but you know, different story for a different day. When it comes to Tartaria and Freemasonry, I guess the direct connection that I made was just through the architecture. I mean, that's one of the things that fascinates me the most is this concept that Robert Sullivan and I were just discussing on a previous episode. Robert Sullivan's a, a Freemason down there in Maryland, and he was talking about how it's this concept of the art of memory, this memory palace, right? And creating this sort of subconscious arena through sculpture and buildings so that when a person's walking through a building or walking next to a building, it invokes this sort of imagery or, or even uh, manifests some sort of, you know, idea into their, their life or their world somehow. But then we have all these people going around and they're looking at buildings and they're saying, no, no, that's Tartarian. That's been here for you know, almost a thousand years before the mud flood and all that, you know, and I'm just like, there. it seems like these two topics are kind of bumping up against each other somehow. Yeah. The idea of the temple being built by Solomon with the power of spirits or demons, diamonds, jinns, you know, this is something that all of the Gnostic or religious or, you know, secret groups have said they've, Gurchief have said they've spirited out of Tartaria, you know, in one word or another, but it really often, if you look at the 19th century, it, it often comes back to Tartaria. And they almost always say that this empire that existed was so much more aware of the internal technologies. So when we think of external technologies, we think of writing with a typewriter, but an internal technology could be using a pencil to write calligraphy. And we have all of these traditions that have been erased that we don't even think of as valuable at cursive, but those were the different kinds of peoples and all these different ways of internalizing technology that have been destroyed. And part of masonry has, you know, valued Moorish sciences. So Moorish sciences, they make sure not to call Muslim scientists, you know, sciences for that reason. You look, we're talking about Iran and the Persian mysticism. Every one of these giant buildings, I guess, did we talk about Kufa before? Have we already done Kufa? No, please tell us. I kind of want to just pull up the photos of it just to save time. If I can, if you can allow that open. Thank you. This is Kufa. It's a city in south of Baghdad, Iraq. And it looks kind of like this, right? With the river system by it. But it's not a star fort. It's a cube city. 
And this is also where the animatrix said that zero one would be the city built by AI that takes over the world in the reset. This is in the 19th century. You can see the great mosque. There's more modern pictures of the mosque, but I'll, I'll get to them. But you'll start to see also these very Asian looking characters there that are in Iraq. You know, this guy looks rather Chinese. So that shows you also not everyone in the picture is, but there are, and especially in the area, there are different kinds of groups there, but that there were Asians that were of the, the Han. So let's, uh, let's go maybe a little bit in reverse just to give people some context, unless you were about to get here, but Kufa is a city in Iraq for people who are just listening, looking at the Wikipedia pages spelled K U F A. Uh, but right. you know, we'll put some some photos yeah. in the in the main photo for this episode. Oh, right. Is this is a podcast? Okay. Well, so no, we we got the, the video main... version too. People who support on Rockfin will see all this. But but yeah, well, I like so to bring it up, in context. If you look up K, if you look up K U F I C, it'll look like it'll look like the word cubic, but with an F. And in fact, mm. it comes from cubic. And it's because the script has these points and lines and looks a lot like a QR code. If you start to really look at some of the later, you start to see these really QR code-like patterns. That it, and This says, this particular image I'm looking at says the Syrah of monotheism. And you can read it. And there are people that can read QR codes, but this is a little bit more, I mean, if you can read Arabic, this actually, a lot of people are like, oh yeah, yeah, I can read this. So it's, it's, it's something that's accessible. This is a very interesting one because it says two things. One, the name Muhammad written four times in the black spaces and then says Ali written four times in white in the white spaces. And between the black and white, getting both images to complement each other, you get this Gamadian, which is essentially the, you know, it looks like the, you know, Vedic Swasi or, you know, the, the swastika. But it, it's it's interesting that the symbol for Muhammad and Ali combined are this geometric pattern that represent, you know, so many things to so many people. And that pattern is found everywhere. Also, if you're walking down the street and you see a sign that tells you where the mosque is, it might say the word mosque, but in the picture of a mosque. So this idea of a hieroglyph inside of the phonemes. And again, completely cubic looking. Like, look, if you find pictures of Kufic, you'll see even into the Spanish period, the Spanish period, it starts to become more and more abstract because it's paintbrush lines. And that shows you the influence from East Asia when the East Asian Chinese were bringing their kinds of uh, Arabic script. And then, then all of a sudden it becomes more, you know, more and more smooth. The smoother writing makes its way into Spain. And when we see Arabic today, it's essentially Spanish Arabic. But the oral, the oldest form of Arabic we have really is this QR code looking writing. And it all comes from again, this is something here interesting that square Kufic is also known as Bani, Banai, which is masonry script. So the connections to masonry are uh, clear that the people that worked in Spain, especially in Portugal, who were involved with building mosques, continued to build cathedrals. And that might be a way that you can associate them with masons to the to the to the ancient tartarian traditions but any gnostic sect any gnostic sect at all would have been connected to arabic information because most of the books available in the dark ages would have been arabic books right and places that could you know people don't realize it was only a generation earlier than that a lot of people could read arabic books and then they were forced not to read arabic because of the inquisition so 
in Arabic, it becomes very simple to read when you start looking at Kufic. You start to re- recognize patterns, kind of like numerics. And then you start to think, oh, wait, money across all of uh, the West using Arabic numerals and, and even writing these you know sy- systems of writing that were Arabic at the time saying, in Allah we trust, or there's no God but Allah. You know, I mean, really, money, in, even in Germany and in Scandinavia, that's written in Arabic. But the Romans adapting it, showing that there was clearly evidence that somebody had part of the tradition. Somebody had another part of the tradition. And there was a scattering for maybe two generations or three generations before the the resurgence of some of these esoteric schools. And the esoteric schools are littered with evidence of Tartaria for that reason. That's also why they associate it with the other side of life, though. Because some of those periods, again, two, three generations after Tartaria was fallen, people said, oh, well, Tartaria exists in the mists of Avalon, you know, the Theosophic style. And they were saying, on the other side of the world, in, in Tartary, in the underground, you know, Hades kind of thing. And so that really changed the definition. So much of Tartaria became a mythological fantasy in the Dark Ages because they had to connect it with hope, you know, because so much of it had been lost all of a sudden. Right. Right, and and we have talked about this before on the show, this concept of uh, Barbary and Tartary being very similar. And then, you know, as we enter into this, you know, age of discovery or so-called discovery, you know, a lot of these places in the, again, so-called new world are named for, you know, this sort of thing. And, And the Native Americans, I was just talking to somebody who, really define my life as a conspiracy theorist from a young age, a mentor of mine. I reconnected with him uh, a month ago, and he reminded me of something that he told me a while ago that I had forgotten, which was Columbus, when he named the people that he saw here Indians, he wasn't mistaking them for people from the place in India, because I don't even think that that name existed at that time in history. He was actually discussing the fact that, or summarizing the fact that these people were living in Dios or in God, in relationship with God. And, you know, so much of what we are told about even that time period is just so filled with bias, you know, and and it's all... That's that's the age of the Arab... uh transition especially Mm. because all of a sudden the 1492 on they're saying anything that was muslim is bad but we're forgetting that it's also not just muslim not just jewish it includes gnostics anybody who's not part of this one church if you're part of another church if you're if you're paul if you don't believe in paul's letters then you get to go too and really again the the arabs the the muslims are only differentiated by having a monopoly of violence if they hadn't had that they would have been considered another gnostic sect just like any other gnostic sect that believed jesus was a prophet and the muhammad was a prophet this is just a gnostic sect they have a bunch of other gnostic books they don't accept this except some of the bible not all the Bible. this is a gnostic group so in general the, the 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 effort to destroy those people that were considered to be God's people that were in alignment that believed in, you know, chi or, you know, in yoga or whatever word that you needed to use in your particular language to describe being in alignment. That was, uh, that was not acceptable to so many of those, those people. One thing I wanted to say though, I'm so close to getting the, the full lineage evidence to explain all this. But again, we were saying that the Muslims believed in a Mahdi, this idea that there's going to be a second coming of Muhammad who's really going to institute 
God's law, Sharia, but like vapor Sharia, like the best kind or whatever that means, you know, when, when God shows up on heaven, on earth and the Grulat, you know, kind of idea that this is a mystical figure, not just man, this is special, you know, somehow. And that character was the Ali. I think it's uh, I forget if it's, hold on, let me get the name right. The fourth Caliph of Rashidun, Ali Ibn Abi Talib, Abin Al- uh, Ali ibn Abi Talib was supposed to be born from a, a, a Berber uh, slave, uh, supposedly. That was a very wise woman who'd been enslaved, right? And again, with slavery meaning different things, because during the Muslim period, you had to respect slaves. The Sharia law has a lot of rules about how to treat your slaves that were, you know, to elevate their standards in ways that were not, they were rehumanized under Muslim law, because it was obvious that so many of these people who had been captured, imprisoned, and even a couple of generations later, because they've been raised by their mothers, had turned out to be intellectuals owned by these people. So slaves had been all of a sudden respected more. And so the son-in-law and companion of the Islamic prophet Muhammad, and then married into the Berber tradition, he expected that his son would be a a Berber Tartar. And again, there's an, we talk about the language difference, but they don't pronounce R's in a lot of Persian and Iranian areas. So the R becomes kind of this apostrophe sound. So it's like Tata. But even then, T, D, and B are so thrown around because of the way the symbol works and the way it's written. Some groups will pronounce Barber, you know, or Bebe or Didi. And Didi becomes the name for father in so many of these Persian cults. They talk about the Didiism and the deity and Didi. And so Tartars in Persian areas, you start to hear more and more Didi, Didi, Didi. And that, that's connected to you know their, this idea that they're a descendant from this tradition. And a lot of them also talk about giants. Like This is another thing, this idea that there are these giant people that used to be the watchers on earth. So many of them talk about this biblical period. There really is a interesting harmony between the, the Gnostic sects and the Persian mysticism and Zoroastrianism and Zarvanism. Zarvanism is a lot closer to Manichaeism because they both have this dualistic idea that there's an evil spirit and a good spirit and that the divine avatar is, is changing. Over time, God looks at and, and reflects on the creation's growth and it changes God. God reacts. God laughs or God cries, and it makes God change. And that somehow, because of everything that happened up until you know Jesus, right, really up to Elijah predicting Jesus, that everything that happened up to that point had you know God had God's fill, and now God was going to become a new avatar of God, like the ending in the Sandman comic where Neil Gaiman changes the same. I don't know if you've read that, but basically this idea that God will become a happier God who doesn't just kill the firstborn of Egypt all the time, you know, and you got to be fair again, we're talking about Moses and remember he shows up to ask the Israeli people to be freed, Israelite people to be freed using the staff that Ramses gave him. His own brother gave him the staff when he leaves and he's using Egyptian magic with this staff that he he turns it into a snake and then they turn their staffs into snakes just not as well as him just to show the first thing he does is egyptian magic so there is this idea also that according to the semitic traditions all of these groups who were nomadic were part of the tartarian empire and they were interacting with each other it is not that far um from israel i'm sorry from from egypt to ukraine and from palestine and from and also from israel to ukraine if you cross the black sea uh, it could literally take you a month or two like to get across. So 
the idea of there being this 13th lost tribe that is connected to Kazakhstan is it's very likely that there is nomadic relationships between tribes that interacted that all at the same time left Egypt when they were supposed to leave Egypt. And again, a couple generations was it four generations earlier than that. Joseph Technicolor Dreamcoat, he goes to Egypt. He becomes the administrator of Egypt and all of the priests are amazed with him. So only four generations later, Moses is being advised by the priests raised by priests who are advised by, you know, again, how this baby in a basket get there and how this all work out. I mean, there's definitely a connection to the Egyptian priests who are not all quote unquote Egyptian. They've come into Kemet from this trade network. And we're seeing these pictures of people that are from Asia and from Africa and everything. So this is another example of one of the major reset cities being Egypt. And it's one that's been allowed to exist because of its connections to Palestine, Canaan, to you know France, you know Damascus. Similarly, it's up until the last generation, Syria has been allowed to exist because Syria is where so much of the trade routes have existed. Lebanon, for instance, is really only the last generation they've really tried to completely decimate Lebanon. Lebanon was a free Arab state for a very long time, a very secular Arabic state. And, you know, they use secularism to destroy Egypt and to make it react with its uh, violent reactionism. But the point is the same. Berbers and Bedouins have been at the center of so many of these religious traditions, you know, and, and uh, political traditions too. It's not just the Mahdi that think that the Tartars are the center of everything, right? It's, it really goes, you can look at Gaddafi, you know, Gaddafi himself, a Bedouin political figure who's saying, hey, I know how things have been run in the desert forever and what they were like back when it was water. And I bet you these are the guys who turned the Sahara from water to desert. What a crazy thing to say, right? Like that doesn't make any sense to anybody else. And he's the guy who gets uh, taken out for saying it. So over and over again, this idea has come up and it's always in these weird, insensitive political spheres where someone gets in trouble for talking about Tartaria. So I think it is pretty clear that it's, it's, you know, it's, it's pervasive in every tradition. Right. Yeah. And this age of Islamic uh, enlightenment, right. It's kind of remember the Arabic, the genius of Arabic civilization has sort of influenced a lot of the world and then was, you know, really disconnected from its root during that inquisition period but it seems like that culture has spread and influenced around the world i mean when you look into the native americans history they talk about you know the bering strait being an explanation for how all these people you know found this place but at the same time we have these olmec heads in central america that seem to point to maybe african nations traveling across the atlantic and you know, Phoenicians and different groups of people from the Mediterranean and, and the Arabic Peninsula. Have you looked into to any of that in your, your research lately? Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting when we start to find out all of the evidence pointing to the Portuguese picking up on the slave routes that they were slaves themselves upon. And Britain is especially a victim of this. Sir Francis Drake gets enslaved himself and a number of other friends of his, I think it's uh, John Guy gets enslaved with him. And they both are, and they, they end up learning all about the, the different trade routes that have been used for thousands of years by the Moorish empire. And the other thing is people talk about where you're going to put your money 
you put your money in slaves in Barbados. So, so much of it was going into this uh, insurance banking system in Barbados, which was human trafficking. So Barbados also tended to be full. I mean, it's likely that Barbados was one of the capital cities still around from the old world. And we can see examples of free energy in Barbados and crazy ruins in Barbados going back supposedly as far as time itself. But it's more likely that the last reset, you know, everything has been taken over very recently, maybe in the last 400 years, Barbados has been completely captured. But yeah, every single trade system that we talk about was originally controlled by, you know, you could say Africans, but a lot of the Africans were already by this point from other places. There are Africans that were living in Brazil or Indonesia thousands, uh, 2000 years ago, at least you've got people living in Indonesia and you, you can look at haplotypes and you can compare haplotype O and haplotype H, haplotype N, and start to realize that the Indonesian oceanic tribes that were involved with these places, they actually predate in some ways, some of these other tribes that we're expecting to have been from Africa. Now that doesn't make sense. If you look at a maternal line, you're like, why, how, no, according to the maternal line, uh, I'm sorry, look, according to the paternal line, these characters must have been from, you know, this, we look at a maternal line and we can say this goes back and this copies that, but a paternal line is very difficult. You have to find the male and follow the male back and you lose some of the chromosomal differences that happen if you have a maternal line too long. Let's say someone kills off all the males in a civilization and they take all of the women. Well, then all of a sudden you've deviated some of your information and it especially can be confusing if you're looking at people that are very similar, but they have a different genome and an original origin story that has a completely different hominid with different gene flow. We've accepted this idea as a society that everyone has the same genome up to their exome. And that's just not true. And we're starting to prove that more and more that there are people that they're their genome is different up to this original point. And this origin point then shows an Indo-Africa theory or rather a connection between migrant peoples and the oceanic peoples that left Java, New Old Zealand, Old Solund, Zealand, which was, you know, connected. It's, an, it's, it's a gone continent, but would have connected pretty much a long, a long peninsula from Hawaii down into New Zealand or east of New Zealand. And New Zealand would have been a much larger connected part of that. And that those people also existed across the Western continent into the Western hemisphere of South America as well. And so we're, we're talking where they interacted with the Russians. Are we talking so about Mu there? Interacting. Sorry, you say something? Sorry, that I didn't mean to interject, but you, you mentioned this old Zealand connecting all the way to Hawaii, would this be the lost continent of Mew that was sunk under the ocean? Right. right. And so that essentially Madame Blavatsky described this as, you know, beyond Lemuria to Mew, to Mu. And Mu is Le Mu Ria. You could say the Mu in a lot of ways, Lemuria, but they were talking about lemurs. Mm. And they thought this idea that the, there's a disconnect between Africa. And so there really is an older Lemuria that she latched onto to explain Mu and then said, no, let's be a little bit more clear about what I'm saying. And now we have in the last maybe year or two, later, laser LIDAR proof of Zealand. And if you start to, wow. to focus on the lost continent that we couldn't find for 300 years, I think is the name of the title of the article. They show all of the evidence and they're accepting now this sunken continent that's in this area and how it would have connected and why there are elephants in these places. They thought, well, did they swim for 200 miles? <laughs> yeah, well, they probably were carried by a volcanic eruption that caused a tsunami. Wow. 
Wow. And that reminds me of your comment about nuclear nuclear volcanoes in Gabon, yeah. Africa, which, you know, brings us back to Africa, a place of so many mysteries. I mean, there's not enough podcasts about or with people from Africa. So I'm hoping that changes over the next 10 years. If anybody listening knows about someone who specializes in Africa, maybe Andreas, you know somebody, I would love to talk to them because there's so many so many rabbit holes you can get into within that topic. But yeah, I, I don't know how much time you have to give us tonight, Andreas, but I would love to to take it into maybe the Patreon. I know I don't normally do this for episodes, but given the nature of what we're going to talk about and how it's going to fit into the documentary I'm working on, I feel like it'd be better suited for the supporters and, and everybody who's free listener can just can just subscribe but what do you think you got you got another you think we can go two hours all together on this yeah i'll just say i could get another half hour in we can finish the hour up cool up to 10 at least cool, cool. so so Which before wise. we wrap up we got we got a question from somebody in our telegram live audience i don't know how this is going to work we're going to try to buzz them in right now via telegram but a doctor i you have the permission to speak brother if you want to ask a question you raised your hand i hope you you didn't do that by accident. Can we hear you, Dr. I? What's up, brother? Hi, can you hear me? Andreas, can you hear him? I can hear you. What's up? What's your question, brother? You're Thanks on the air. Heck, just real quick, much respect to Andreas. Much respect to Mark. Andreas, always coming with the fire, man. Just, you know, never want to stop listening. So much respect. I, I just, just, I came in maybe about 30, 40 minutes ago. I've heard you speak on Rotaria. I don't know if that was just the main uh, topic of the conversation, but in in your research and everything that you've looked into, is is there a point, you know, basically like a timeline to where you know where where's the beginning of the timeline of that if that has come up at all? Basically, that's my question. Right on. So. Yeah, totally. Thank you very, very much for that question. And, you know, this might bug some people, but I don't have the answer to everything. And I only <laughs> can guess on based on the hypotheses that I have what I know. So if I'm wrong and someone in, or even in myself in five years has a better answer and someone says, see, he was wrong. You know, that's annoying. So just so you know, I'm doing my best and I hope that it's right. Try to check out my daily YouTubes because I'm going through as much evidence as I can to really cement the chronology. But what I what I believe now is that the Muhammadan cal calendar, the Ishri calendar, the Hajri calendar is one of the biggest clues we have besides the obvious, which is the Fomenko chronology. And what it shows is that this Christ figure probably happened maybe a couple centuries after what we think of as the Christ century, because we are maybe 300 years wrong on the phantom time hypothesis. And then a thousand years ago, instead of 2000 years ago, because the Fomenko chronology shows that the Gregorian calendar has been realigned before that during the pseudo Isidorian decrees. So what I believe is sometime around what you might think of as the Constantinian period, which was a lot more recent than we believe, that there was a fall, that there's a fall maybe 700 years ago, you can almost say. And then that led to when we think of the Jesuit period, but the Jesuit period and the resurgence of the Jesuit period, which is about two to 300 years later than that, is also when the Muhammadan Hajri calendar begins. 
So I believe that the Muhammadan calendar kind of issues the beginning of the reset. We, we, we can see this as an example because that's also when we say, oh, well, all of the truth we have is from Islam. And that's just too simple of an answer. So we start looking at the Persian mystics and Sufi and everything, and they're saying, no, actually, we have these other calendars. There's these days out of time. There's these things that have happened, and they're supplanting this idea. I, I think that that's, that's the thing. And the other thing is that by the end of the eight, 17th century, they'd set up this to happen, that this would be the 19th uh, to the 20th, you know, 19 to 20, because – 19 into 20 has to catch 18. The three sixes is 18 with a zero is 19. These are important numerological numbers to a lot of people. And they were hoping that the 19 and 20, because of 13, 12 and 12 and 19 and 13 and 20. And 12 and 19 is because the Mayan calendar, it, which you think of as having 13 moons and 20 days counts zero. So from zero to 12, and that's 13. And from zero to 19, that's 20. So there really is, if you count zero, an extra number with whichever number, which is the full value of anything. So entering into the 21st century, right, being the 2000s and everything. This is all part of this plan to design for the next reset to come based on the reset, which was about 600 to 400, really, to complete it years ago. But again, when we think of Jesus, this Yeshua figure, this would have been maybe 300 or 1300 by our calendar, if we were to look at it like that. And then by 600 to 700, Muhammad, you know, Jesuits to Muhammad. And there's already, you know, it's really about the same time. It could have been Maybe 11th century is Jesus, and the 13th century is when the the Jesuits really emerge. But I'm just not able to prove that yet. So I'm sorry. I just wanted no, to say no, that's no, why no. we're trying to to prove everything. But the chronology is the hardest question, and we've right. got as many people working on it as there are people that are interested in the subject. So right. I appreciate anybody who has a better answer to help as well. Well, yeah, and dude, I'll tell you what, for anybody listening, you know, how many times have we spoke, and I've probably asked you the same question Dr. I asked, probably in a different way every time, and, and it was only until just then that I kind of, that was a very concise way of explaining it. First of all, I'll give you credit, because we have we have talked about this subject a lot, and, and you did a really good job of breaking it down, and I get it now. I really do get it. So, hey, if you're out there and you're like, whoa, Andreas is... He's like a fire storm. Like he's like facts, 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 facts. Like, don't worry. Like, just listen to all the interviews, focus. You'll get it. You'll start to get it. And he's got a lot of great stuff you can find on YouTube. We got to put some of that on a podcast feed, but hey, I won't really got to like do it too as much. soon as possible. Let's <laughs> do that soon. And, and yeah, dude, I mean, you are always doing really cool stuff, innovating and very intricate, intricate research as well. So you do a really great job of articulating articulating that and i heard a rumor from a fellow podcast friend that uh, you have a buddy who you consider the human super con computer and i know tripoli gave you that nickname and it's well deserved but uh, you know i'm really shocked that there's someone you regard as a superhuman computer so uh, let's meet I that have, guy I as have soon as possible resources we got to get david charles plate on here he's yes. mk ultrasound 723 at gmail.com <laughs> uh syncpress.com he's a really great guy okay but he's not he's not in every single sphere it's just that he's studied 
Hebrew under, you know, he was a, a kid from Santa Cruz who ended up taking care of an older dude who needed help while around town. And that guy was a rabbi and he ended up learning, you know, he, he had some Jewish in his, his background. I think his, his mother was like a Jew for Jesus or something, but he was a very, you know, modern secular like dance club kid. And he, he's the kind of guy that would hang out at any, you know, festival burning man or otherwise. Right. But he learned so much about every Hebrew letter and every aspect that when we were going in to talk about Oz, I mean, it was just, I wanted to make sure that we got everything we could about Oz through his perception of, you know, the, the, the word Oz means strength in Hebrew. So getting into theosophy and what Wizard of Oz is really about and the Emerald City, we're talking about green and Ishmael and the connections with theosophy to Arabes wow. Gnosticism. Well, I mean, it, it's all... It's all hyper interrelated. So, right. <laughs> but yeah, David Charles Plate, he also is the sync book master. So he invented mixing music and movies, basically. So oh, if you wow. want to see his work, go to the sync prep, uh, sync book, thesyncbook.com and look for sync flicks. They're, they're amazing. He's got one that is uh, ABBA Super Troopers with the movie Starship Troopers. That's, I think, probably one of my favorites. Damn. Okay. Well, shit. Yeah. I would love to have him on the show if you could help with that. And thanks for giving me and everyone Definitely. listening his email. Please, folks, have respect his email. He, he no, he's like, he needs that. It's the thing. He's, okay, he needs, cool. he doesn't, ha- he's, he should be on podcasts. He should be on the circuit. Cool. I'm going to make, I'm pushing him on, I'm pushing him out on the train, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many things we could talk about on that subject. That book is full of rabbit holes and I've talked about it many times i listened to the full audiobook a, a couple months ago and there's so much that didn't make its way into the movie like like most adaptations but it was just it was really fantastic to see how much of theosophy and its concepts made its way into that guy's work i mean the book that followed the first one featured a guy of a boy who turned a pumpkin into a homunculus to fight his witch mother. So like totally. it goes way yeah, deeper. Well, if you go deeper into that book really quickly, I know yeah, we're supposed, I don't know know. If we're going to save it for Patreon or not, but I want no, to tell him to it. do it. It's yeah. important. So Ozma of Oz, it's all about this boy Gillikin. who's looking for Ozma of Oz and to find Ozma of Oz. He has to uh, go through this huge ritual transformation of himself and realize that he was okay. Let's, I'm almost ruining it. I'm gonna try it better. Ozma was destroyed and hidden in a homunculus herself as a little boy. And she was that boy. So at 13, he has to go through a bat mitzvah and transforms into Ozma, the princess, and he loses his uh, Gillikin self. There's a lot of ways to look at that. I think the main thing is Wizard of Oz. Dorothy is a young Indiana Jones equivalent to Madame Blavatsky. It's really just young Madame Blavatsky. Come on, let's just be real. But then after the first book, it's more about himself, right? And he becomes Dorothy. So Gillikin is his transformation where he can really embody the, the feminine Sophia of Christ, et cetera, et cetera. And then as the story goes on, I mean, it just gets weirder and weirder. You get to the fourth book and you start realizing that the Tartarus, this idea of being on the afterlife. So many people who ended up in Oz are people that were, you know, there's a kid who was educated so much he couldn't climb down a ladder because he found out that you could only ascend when you climb. So in other words, in a fire, he he was stuck and he couldn't climb down the ladder and he ended up in Oz. And so there's a lot of these ideas that the modern world is in opposition to this, I want to call it Druidic, because again, Baum was into Druidism a lot. So he had the myths of Avalon. There's this other more coherent rhyme and reason on the other side of the veil and that we can go to it. Very good book. But yeah, the, probably the first trans superhero would be Ozma. 
<laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, definitely mind-blowing stuff. And uh, yeah, man, geez, you just have it all summed up there. I think that book and the whole series deserve a full breakdown. You know, maybe you're the guy to do it. It sounds like you're already sort of doing it in some places. But before we try to do it with the rising RTFA, rising from the ashes, right? RTA. But for some reason, and I don't know if this is just like mystical heiress discordia or something, but only my audio came through. And oh, everyone else yes, did this is Roman told me about this. This is who Roman shout out to yeah. Romy Romy. He told me about your friend, the supercomputer. So, yeah, wow. Okay, well, we'll, we'll have to mediate that. <laughs> we'll, have somehow. To, we'll have to redo the whole episode, but he, he, <laughs> He does have my audio and he remixed it into some sort of a techno rave track. He's definitely <laughs> going to put that on SoundCloud or make a music video. So don't worry. There's something about Wizard of Oz. Yeah. You'll see. Well, that's dope. And I was going to say, before I lose my train of thought on that, I have a, an audio book that I found. It was a free archived guide to stoicism. And I put it on the Patreon mixed in with this free funky avant-garde music that I found on free music archive. So that's something that is only available on the Patreon. But what we're about to do will be available for the free listeners eventually. Uh, so don't be dismayed. Don't feel like we're, you know, hiding Andreas's good, good skull and bones information and all the other stuff I have to ask him about. Don't don't give it as an opportunity to yeah. invest and make questions and be part of the conversation. Right, right. And and people who support the show, you'll get it early. Everybody else, you'll have to wait. But but until next time, and before we go, Andres, let the listeners know where they can find you. Zertus.com, right? Is that still the the place? Yeah, you go to Exertus.com or Andreas.me. And you can find me there. I also have TartaryNova.com, which yep. has links to our Discord and our community matrix server. I'm going to put a link to the Telegram because we have a Telegram now. But you can also find me in every social network. Go to Andreas Exertus on Twitter. I think that's the one I'm trying to grow the most. Follow me on Twitter, Mark. I love you. Yeah. Oh, dude, I never even used my Twitter, but I did notice that you've been commenting yesterday. So I'm going to follow you back. I just used I tried the sending you a message earlier and I was like, hey, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Well, Definitely send me the links to those telegrams too, because I want to update your Alt Media United page. We do have an Alt Media United page for your show, Recent Tartarians, and I'm glad to see you're doing more of those. So, yeah, folks, please, I know you're already doing it, but go and support Andreas in all the places. And until next time, have a great moment and wherever you are in the now. Peace. All right. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. Andreas Exertus coming back for a fourth time and bringing the heat as usual. Always so many things to follow up on when you have a guy like Andreas on the show. So many different points of reference that you can go and look into yourself and I'm sure find endless varieties of information and maybe you can start to form your own hypothesis. And next thing you know, you're talking to someone like me on a podcast like this. Who knows? Or maybe even better, you write a book. Or even better, maybe you, you make a documentary. Who knows? Whatever you're called to. But either way, I appreciate you being called to listen to this podcast. And if you made it this far, which I'm sure you did, because how could you not? You got to support the show because I can't do this for free, folks. That's right. I don't have really any other source of income outside of podcasting. So 
save for a couple odd jobs I do here and there. And yeah, sure, that's by choice, but I believe in myself, folks. I could get a nine to five job if I really needed to, but that's no fun. This is a hell of a lot, hell of a lot funner, and it's really awesome to see how many of you out there have responded to the show. And geez, if as many people listen to the show supported the patreon we would be living in uh on a yacht somewhere or something who knows but uh no that's not really what my goals are that's not where my life is heading the more you support this show through our patreon or through one-time donation or through rockfin or through just buying merch or even just listening and sharing the show with your friends the more you support the more this awareness grows because that's what I'm all about. I'm a man on a mission and we are spreading awareness of this broader reality that we discuss on this podcast here. And yes, you may be here because your family thinks you're crazy. That's fine. They might not be along with you for the journey. That's also fine. But you have a new family now. It's the human family. And you realize that we're all the same we all bleed the same color and so on and so forth and there's a lot of really interesting people out there who i'm looking forward to connecting with so if you have any suggestions for guests please do reach out and give me some suggestions and as far as the patreon stuff that i alluded to in this conversation i'm very sorry i know i don't usually do that i don't break an episode into two parts but I promise for you holdouts who don't want to support the show, uh, you may be compelled to do so in the future because we are going to be creating a documentary. And if you want a sneak peek on what this documentary is about, what it pertains to and all that, so forth and such, you got to go on the Patreon to get it first. I'm not saying it won't be out for the general public. It'll be out in parts certain parts you may see this topic come through in future conversations on the show but either way i'm hoping to keep as much of it veiled as i can and uh yeah if you like what you see sign up on the patreon maybe you can be a part of the research team who knows if you want to help out maybe you get your name in the credits this thing whatever it comes out to be so that's as much as I can say right now, but look forward to that and more good stuff coming in the future. Uh, a lot of good podcasts out this week. I can't recommend enough Matt and Shane Secret Podcast. They just had a four-part episode series with Louis C.K. about the presidents, which, yeah, I don't know, not for everybody, but I thought it was very fascinating. I like Matt and Shane Secret Podcast. They're very funny. So that is what I've been listening to. Looking forward to talking to Michael Wan tomorrow. That episode will be out later this week. Your Handbook for the Apocalypse. For those who don't know, Michael Wan and I have about 27 episodes of Your Handbook for the Apocalypse. If you go back in the RSS feed and you think, oh, wow, 12 episodes and they stopped. No, you're wrong. We kept this train on the tracks and we've been going strong for 27 episodes and we got the 28th episode we're going to record it tomorrow and we've been talking about a lot of interesting stuff on your handbook for the apocalypse so please if you love this show i'm sure you'll love that show as well and another podcast that i really would love to recommend is the free thinker society podcast which 
I am now a co-host on. That's right. I am the co-host slash producer of the Freethinkers Society podcast. So give that show a listen. We just had Tino Sanchez on the podcast. He's been on this one before in the past. It was a good conversation about comedy, pit bulls, uh, and all the ways that the government and society is poisoning us. So it got into a lot of different subjects. But that episode will be out this week. Well... I'm recording this a week early, so it'll be out by the time you're hearing this. So go check it out, Freethinker Society Podcast. They have about uh, 60 or 70 episodes or so, um, and the last five are with Mike and I as co-hosts, and it's going to be that way from here on out. You can see the difference. One of uh, you know the last certain episodes are season two, and everything before that is season one. And you may have listened to this before because I've put the Freethinker Society in this RSS feed before, a sort of mashup of all my different appearances on the Freethinker Society podcast. And to be honest, the only reason I did that was because I was afraid that the show was going to end. And I'm like, you know what? I got to support this show. Doesn't seem like the producer's in on it as much as he could be or wants to be or whatever the story was we don't need to get into that and you know long story short it ended up working out because now mike and i are doing the podcast together so now i'm doing two podcasts with two different people named mike very interesting michael juan and michael romanelli so i hope that's not confusing but we have those podcasts floating around on the RSS feed. And if you have any trouble finding it, just go to altmediaunited.com. It's really easy to navigate. You get all the podcasts with uh, friends and people that I've podcasted with in the past. And you know, all kinds of great people on Alt Media United. And even some people that I haven't podcasted with. So if that's you and you're listening out there, hit me up. We'll do a podcast. I want to do a podcast with everybody on Alt Media United's network at some point, but I shouldn't say network, it's a cooperative. But yeah, if this is your first time hearing about it, go check it out. Alt Media United, it's a cooperative that I founded for independent podcasters. Sign up on Telegram to stay in touch with the show and other people who listen to the show, other people whose families think they're crazy. We're going to put a clip in here from a recent uh, Telegram voice message that I got from someone whose family thinks they're crazy. And if you want to tell everybody listening why your family thinks you're crazy, go over to our Telegram and leave us a voice message. It's really, really simple. Uh, You just use that little button in the right-hand corner, uh, bottom right-hand corner of your screen. I think it changes. You have to, like, click it to change it. I think it's like a camera icon, and then it changes to a microphone icon. And you just hold that down and, and leave a voice message. Tell the world why your family thinks you're crazy, why you love this show. Maybe some comments on who you want to have, uh, who you want to listen to next on the show, because I'm always open to guest suggestions. That's one of my favorite things that happens is sometimes you, the lovely listeners of this show, introduce me to some new people. Roger Spur is somebody who Troy and uh, Rob 
Shout out to Troy and Rob on the Patreon. They've been encouraging me to look into Roger Spurs' work. So who knows? We'll see if I can get in touch with them. Maybe we'll get him on the show. I know he talks about a lot of interesting stuff that many do not even know about, let alone talk about. So very cool subjects there. And uh, yeah, like I said, that does it. Please support the show in all the ways. You can go to myfamilythinksimcrazy.com to get all the links. Very simply, all the ways to support the show. You can go to the Kofi store to send us a one-time donation pick up some merch we have links to our merch store there you can get t-shirts you can get all kinds of great stuff uh and like i said if you want bonus content you can sign up on the patreon if you want the video version of the show you can sign up on rockfin and i should mention that every episode of illuminati confirmed has a companion patreon episode with just us hosts chris juan and i chris from the mensa podcast and juan from the one-on-one podcast the three of us we have a good time we just talk shit and sometimes we make fun of each other sometimes we make fun of Nicolas Cage sometimes we praise Nicolas Cage he just put uh, a movie out well and Juan and Chris demanded that I watch it so if you want to hear our thoughts on the latest Nicolas Cage movie sign up on the Patreon and uh, yeah thanks to everyone tuned in and uh, have a great moment wherever you are in the now.